0: This morning we're going to look at uh, Matthew 25, and we are going to try to cover all 46 verses in Matthew 25. They don't let me uh, out of my cage to do this too often, so I figured I ought to milk it for all it was worth. So we'll try to do all 46 verses if we can. If we stick with it, I think we can make it. C.S. Lewis at one point had a very perceptive observation about the second coming and that uh, simply was it is either going to happen or it's not see? it's it's either an event which is going to be the most remarkable earth shattering history changing event in the entire history of the world see or it's not going to happen now if it's not going to happen then it's no big deal say we can just go, on, go ahead living life as we please if life is just going to go on per, in perpetuity and just keep going on the same way it is now There's no need to get particularly concerned. But if the second coming is a reality, as the scriptures consistently affirm and teach that it is, then it's the most important thing in all of life to be prepared for it. There's nothing more important in all of life than to be prepared for the way in which history is going to wind up and going to consummate. Now, in chapter 24 of Matthew, as David has been taking us through in the past month, the Lord has been describing for us the nature of the end times and the signs that will precede his return, precede his physical return to earth. Now in chapter 25, he is going to tell us how we individually can be prepared for that coming. If this is the thing that's going to happen, if this is the way history will wind up with the Lord descending and bringing history to a screeching halt and setting up his kingdom, then it's very important that we learn what it means to be a part of that kingdom. Now, he does this in three sections. There's three movements to chapter 25. There are first two parables, and then the third uh, paragraph kind of draws some conclusions for us. So let's look at the first parable, which is the parable of the ten virgins. Why don't we just read this together? First parable there in Matthew 25. Then, that is, when the Lord returns, then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps, and went out to meet the bridegroom and five of them were foolish and five were prudent. This is the explanation for their foolishness and their wiseness for when the foolish took their lamps they took no oil with them but the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying they all got drowsy and began to sleep but at midnight there was a shout behold the bridegroom come out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, saying, And this is a very strong statement, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. And later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered and said, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Now the Lord, as is his habit with respect to the parables, often draws upon an experience which was a part of everyday life in Palestine, to make make his point. And weddings were just as much a part of everyday life in Palestine in the first century as they are in America in the 20th century. So everyone would know what he was talking about. Now, when weddings, marriages took place in Palestine, the first step was an engagement which lasted for the period of a year. And then at the end of that engagement period, the wedding ceremony would take place. And the procedure that was involved is that the bridegroom, who had been betrothed to his bride for a year, would go to her home and pick her up and bring her back through the streets of the city to his home. And there the ceremony would take place. There would be a wedding feast, a celebration, what we call a reception today. And then later that evening, the wedding would be consummated in the bridegroom's home. Now, that's the social setting that the Lord is giving us here. And there are ten virgins who are part of this story, and they are... Could be attendants of the bride. They could be friends of the bridegroom, bridesmaids, whatever. But they are waiting for the bridegroom to return to his home with the bride for the wedding ceremony to take place. Now they all had lamps. Evidently, it was a part of the custom for these bridesmaids to greet the bridegroom on his way and to accompany him with these lamps uh, flaring brightly down the, down the streets and into the home where the celebration would take place. Now, the Lord says there were ten virgins waiting for the coming of the bridegroom. Five of them, he says, were wise, and five were foolish. And what separated the wise from the foolish is that the foolish virgins had simply brought their lamps with only the oil that could be carried in the little bowl of the lamp. The five wise virgins not only had brought their lamps, but also had brought an extra supply of oil in flasks along with them. And so they were prepared then for the coming of the bridegroom. Now, the bridegroom was delayed in his coming. And as the night progressed, all of the virgins got sleepy and eventually they all nodded off and fell asleep. And then in the middle of the night, when you'd least expect the wedding ceremony to take place, a shout comes ringing through the streets that the bridegroom is on his way. And so the virgins scramble to their feet and wipe the sleep from their eyes and they begin to trim their lamps. And at that point, the five foolish virgins discover that they their supply of oil of olive oil is running low and their lamps are beginning to sputter and to gutter and one by one are being extinguished and so in haste they turn to the five wise virgins and they say give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out and the and the wise virgins say to them it's not possible if we give you our oil there won't be enough for all of our lamps and all ten of our lamps will go out and there'll be no festive lighting for the bridegroom when he returns. And so the five foolish virgins then are forced to go through the streets of Jerusalem looking for a 7-Eleven that stocks olive oil so they can relight their lamps and come back to the to the party. Well, in the meantime, as they're out searching the streets of Jerusalem for a dealer who can sell them some oil, the bridegroom returns. Now, the five wise virgins, they're they're... Uh, lamps are burning brightly, and the bridegroom comes, and they accompany him into the wedding hall, and the door is shut, and the feast begins. And then later, the five foolish virgins come to the door, and they pound on the door, and they say, "Let us in! Let us in! We want to be a part of the party." And from inside the door, the bridegroom says to them, "I do not know you," and the five foolish virgins are then excluded from the wedding feast. Well, that's the story. Now, the question that we ask ourselves immediately is who do these figures represent? Who are these people? Who is the Lord talking about? Well, clearly the bridegroom pictures the Lord. He's the one that is coming. And often in Scripture, his return for his people is characterized as a wedding feast, a wedding supper. So the bridegroom is the Lord, very obviously. Now, the ten virgins, well, those are those that in some sense are professing to be waiting for the coming of the Lord. So... The ten virgins just represent the church. Okay? That's you and me, all of us who have identified ourselves with the bridegroom, who have made ourselves a part of the wedding party, and profess to be waiting for his coming. And some of us, the Lord says, are wise, and some are foolish. And the word wise just means to be sens- sensible or reasonable or thoughtful. Some are prepared. They've, they, they are realistic about the coming of the bridegroom. They're prepared for it. Others are foolish, and it's the word we get. Uh, it's the Greek word from which we get the word "moron." That there are people who are who are foolish. They just haven't thought things through, and they're not prepared consequently for the coming of the bridegroom. Now, one interesting thing that is significant, I believe, is in verse five when the Lord says that the bridegroom was delaying. And in the next parable, the parable of the talents, it says that the master returns, down in verse 19, after a long time. And both of these are parables dealing with the Lord's return. So it's very clear that the Lord himself taught that there would be a lengthy delay between his first coming and his second coming. Some people read the New Testament and feel convinced that the Lord and the apostles were absolutely convinced beyond any shadow of doubt that the Lord was coming in their lifetime and that consequently the fact that the Lord's coming has been delayed 2,000 years is an evidence that they were not inspired when they spoke. But see, they clearly understood the Lord's teaching here. The Lord himself said there would be a delay, which is stretched in our point to 1,900 years. Now, while he was delaying, it says that all of the virgins fell asleep. Now, the command that the Lord gives us at the end of this parable is that we're to be on the alert, to be awake, to be watchful. Well, that would suggest that All ten of these virgins, the five wise and the five foolish, had disobeyed the Lord's command by falling asleep. But see, that's not true. There's no condemnation that's meted out to the five wise virgins. See, they're accepted into the wedding feast, and nothing is said to them at all about falling asleep. And that suggests to me that the falling asleep represents something else. I want you to notice carefully the pattern. First of all, the virgins fall asleep, and then... There's a shout, and then the virgins arise. Have you seen that progression anywhere else in Scripture? Falling asleep, a shout, and rising? Well, you've seen that in 1 Thessalonians 4, haven't you? Where Paul describes those who have fallen asleep, then he says the Lord will descend with a shout and will all rise to meet him. I think that's what the Lord is referring to here in parabolic fashion. His coming, he says, will be delayed long enough that the virgins, the wedding party, many of them will fall asleep. In other words, they'll die. And the point of the parable, then, is that when the Lord returns, when the shout comes that the Lord is on his way back, it will be too late at that point to prepare for his coming. That the only opportunity you'll have to prepare for his coming is the life that you are now leading. And it also suggests to me that for each of us, the second coming occurs when we die that the next thing that we'll experience is the shout of the bridegroom and the resurrection to meet him. So regardless of how long the second coming is delayed on the calendar, for us, the second coming is delayed only as long as our lifetime. And if we should happen to live in the day when the Lord returns, then of course that will be when we meet the Lord. But it gives to me a sense of urgency. The Lord may come in uh, in 2,500 or 2,800 or 3,000 A.D. We don't know that. The Lord told us very clearly. We just can't know. But... We do know that we'll meet the bridegroom when we die. So now is the time for us to get ourselves ready to be prepared for the coming. Because when he comes, it's too late then. See, there's nowhere we can turn. The foolish virgins had no place to turn for help. It was too late. The time for preparation had passed, and the time for accounting had come. So clearly, I think, the point of this first parable is that we're to be ready. To be alert does not mean that we are to be constantly watching the clouds and constantly computing on our calendars the probable date of the return. But what it does mean is that whatever it takes to be prepared for the coming of the bridegroom, we're to do that. That's the point. Do whatever it takes to be prepared for the bridegroom's coming. Well, the question we ask ourselves at that point is, how do I do this? How is it that I go about preparing myself for the coming of the bridegroom? Well, that's what the next parable is all about. So let's look at the parable of the talents, and this is in verses 14 to 30. The Lord says that my coming will be just like a man who was about to go on a journey, in verse 14, and who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he received the one talent, went away and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. The one also who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted to me two talents. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow, and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to one who has shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. And cast out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, again, the Lord is just drawing upon an everyday experience in Palestine. They would readily be familiar with this situation. Uh, Slaves often in the first century were responsible for commercial dealings, and they were slaves, but at the same time, they were more like executive assistants than anything else. And here is a man who's a prosperous businessman, and he has a certain amount of money that he wants to see invested so that a return can be made on it. And that's what talents are, by the way. Talents is just a a reference to money. A talent was just a weight. And if you look up a Bible dictionary, you can oftentimes see a picture of a talent weight. It'll just be a big uh, stone or uh, pottery type thing that may weigh uh, sometimes 60, 75 pounds. And that's a talent. And what they would do is they would weigh out enough silver on the other side of the balance until they leveled out. And that was one talent worth of silver. So talent is a weight which refers to money. And so this master had a certain amount of money, a sizable amount of money. I computed this out, and it depends on exactly what a talent means. But in some some computations, a talent is worth $1,000. On another computation, a talent would be worth about $16,000 in current buying power. But regardless, it was a substantial amount of money. That's the point. And the boss wanted to see this money invested in his absence. He's going away on a journey, going to the Bahamas for vacation. So he entrusts his executive assistants with the responsibility of running the business in the meantime. And then he comes back. See, in the meantime, the one that had been entrusted, entrusted five talents, and all of this was meted out according to their proven business ability. One had five. He was more responsible and more proven in business. He goes out, invests that five talents, and generates five more talents. Saw a 100% increase in the investment of the master. The second slave was given two talents. He likewise went out and engaged in commercial enterprise, and he generated two more talents. So he increased the master's investment 100%. Now the third slave took the money that the master gave him, and he thought to himself, and the master goes on to say this was just an excuse. He really just didn't want the responsibility. But he said to himself, now, my master's a very harsh boss, very, very uh, demanding individual. And if I go out and engage in business and I invest this money and the business goes belly up and I go bankrupt, the master will return and I will have nothing to show him. I'll have no talent. He gave me one and he'll come back and find nothing and it'll be very difficult on me, very hard on me. So the best thing I ought to do is to take that talent home and dig a hole in my backyard and just bury it down there, cover it up, So nobody knows where it is. Nobody can steal it. And then when my master comes back from his trip, then I'll dig up that talent and give it back to him. And that's what he did. Now, the master's words to the first two gentlemen, you notice, are exactly the same. The guy that was given five talents and created five more, the master says to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. And in the next Individual comes into the office and says, I had two talents and I generated two more. And the boss says exactly the same thing to him. He says, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. See, there was no extra special word of commendation for the guy with five talents. The word of approval was exactly the same. But when the third individual comes in and presents the talent to the Lord, The master says to him that that's not a good excuse. That's just a smokescreen. You're really actually a lazy slave. You were afraid to take any risk with my money. You were afraid to take responsibility for what I entrusted to you. And you're lazy, and the talent will be taken away from you and given to the one with ten talents, and you will be cast out into the outer darkness. That's the story. Now, the question is, who do these people represent? Well, again, obviously, I think we we recognize that the master in this story is a reference to the Lord who is coming back to settle accounts with his slaves. Now, the slaves, well, again, those are the same people as the virgins. That's you and I. We are those that are identified with the household of the master. We're those that are involved in the business transactions of the the master's business. And we're those that will be held accountable for how we've dealt with what he's entrusted to us and among us are some that are faithful and among us are some that the master calls wicked or lazy Now, the question then is what are these talents obviously the story hinges on what these talents are because uh, that's what we're held accountable for what we do with these talents now some have suggested that these talents refer to natural abilities that we've all been given natural abilities by the lord and if we use those to his glory he will call us good and faithful servants but if we cover up those talents if we refuse to develop those natural abilities then the lord will come back and accuse us of being lazy of not getting up right enough to practice our piano and so on but i think clearly that can't be the point because what the lord says he says that these talents were distributed according to their ability so verse 15 says they were distributed according to their own ability well it wouldn't make very good sense for natural abilities to be distributed according to natural ability. That's just redundant. So the Lord must be talking about something else. Well, He gives us three clues as to what these talents are. Obviously, the first clue is that they're very important to the Master. These talents are are things of value and great great importance to the Lord, to the Master. The second clue is that he has entrusted to us these talents... Well, in his physical absence. He's given them to the members of his household. And the third thing is that we will be held accountable for what we do with these talents. They're valuable, they've been entrusted to us, and we're going to be held accountable for them. Well, what is it that's of great value to the Lord, has been entrusted to us in his absence, and for which we'll be held accountable one day? Well, I think the last paragraph confirms this, and we'll look at that in a few minutes, But quite simply, the talents in this story are opportunities to minister to one another. It's opportunities to serve, opportunities to meet needs of people around us. That's what a talent is. The Lord has distributed to each of us a certain number of talents. Each of us in this room this morning, who are identified with the household of God, have an opportunity that the Lord has given to us to meet needs of people around us, to minister to one another, to serve one another. Now, we generally tend to think, when we think of the word ministry, we immediately think of the professionals, the people that are paid to be good and paid to study the scriptures and paid to teach the scriptures and paid to counsel people. And we think, okay, this parable must apply to them. They're going to be held accountable for how, how uh, hard they work at studying and teaching the scriptures. But the term is much broader than that. See, all of us, every slave in the household, has been entrusted with talents. So each of us, in our own sphere of influence, have opportunities to minister to people. Uh, You may be a housewife with three children, young children, and you may not have much mobility. You may pretty well be confined to your home and your neighborhood. But see, even in that sphere, there's opportunity to minister, to meet the needs of your children, to meet the needs of your husband, to meet the needs of neighbors that live next door and across the street. So you have opportunity there. You may be a businessman who works in an office with other Christians or even other non-Christians. And these are people that that have needs, need to be encouraged and edified and built up and have mercy shown to them and encouraging words offered and challenges and exhortations given to them to help them grow in their relationship with the Lord. And see, that's your sphere of ministry. Or you may be a a student in a dorm who just lives on a hall full of people who have needs and are battling with great issues of 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 their own importance and their self-worth and their value to themselves and to others and the direction their life is going and what kind of things uh, life has in store for them and career choices. So many people around us, see, that that need, have needs. And the Lord has put us there, entrusted us with these responsibilities and opportunities for ministry. And how we take care of these opportunities for ministry is what will be evaluated on when the Lord returns. Now, it says that these talents are distributed according to our own ability. If the talents are spiritual opportunities for ministry, then what would our own ability be? Well, it would be our own spiritual ability to carry out these opportunities for ministry. And in the scriptures, very clearly, that's a function of our spiritual maturity and our spiritual gifts. See, that's the ability that the Lord has given to us to exercise ministry responsibility our spiritual maturity, our level of growth, and the kind of gifts that the Lord has given us. Now, again, it's clear in this area that the Lord didn't intend for everybody to be given exactly the same spiritual equipment. There are those uh, in the body that have very prominent gifts, gifts of teaching and preaching and evangelism, gifts which bring them before thousands of people. And their opportunities to meet needs are on a wide scale, a very broad scale. And there are others of us that have been given gifts that are much more quiet in nature, gifts of mercy or gifts of encouragement, uh, gifts of helps, gifts of giving, gifts that operate quietly and without, without great notice. But they've been given to us, and they're our capacity to carry out the ministries with which God has entrusted to us. And each of us have been given just the right amount, see, the place in which we're in right now, the sphere of friends that we have, this business sphere, the home sphere that we're in, is just exactly right for us to, to assume the responsibility God's given to us. He's matched the responsibility with our level of growth and with our gifts. He hasn't given us more than we can handle, but he's given us enough to challenge us. Okay? Now, the other exciting thing about this is that the two slaves that were faithful in their area of ministry saw a 100% growth they saw growth in their sphere of responsibility and that's the great lesson for us see if we're faithful just quietly and simply without fanfare without notice without publicity just quietly faithful in the responsibilities of ministry that God's entrusted to us then we'll see growth in ministry we'll see expanding influence and an expanding impact on people See, all of us want that, don't we? We want our lives to count, to be valuable, to be important, to make a difference in the way other people live. Well, this is how that can happen, is simply and quietly to be faithful in the sphere of ministry that God has placed us in right now. I don't know if you've ever traced through the story of Barnabas in the book of Acts, but uh, he's a perfect example of this. The first time that we see Barnabas in Acts, he sells a plot of land and gives it to the church. That's all he does. The second time we see Barnabas, he takes Paul by the hand and personally takes him in to see the apostles after Paul had become a Christian and the apostles wanted to have nothing to do with him. But Barnabas, faithfully and quietly exercising the gift of encouragement that had been given to him, took Paul with him, broke down those barriers, and opened up great doors for ministry for the apostle that might otherwise never have been opened up, see? So he's, again, an increasing sphere of influence. Now he's not just selling land and and giving the proceeds to the church, but he's involved in launching the career of one of the greatest Christian uh, ministers of all time. And then the third time we see Barnabas in in the account of Acts, he's taking off with Paul on the very first missionary journey ever recorded, a gradually expanding ministry for Barnabas. And that's the same potential, see, that the Master holds out for us if we're simply faithful and the responsibilities that he's given to us. I want to come back and talk about the third uh, the third slave, but let's look at that last paragraph before we do that. And this is the paragraph that starts with the story of the sheep and the goats. We're accustomed to thinking of sheep as one kind of animal and goats as another and no possibility of confusing the two. Well, in most parts of the world, that's true. But in Palestine, they often herded sheep and goats together, and the goats were often of the same size and the same shape and the same color as goats. And about the only way you could tell them a different tell the difference between them was that goats had an upturned tail. So, from a distance, the unpracticed observer would think that they were exactly alike, just like the virgins all looked to be alike, the foolish and the wise as well. So, when nightfall comes and the shepherds in Palestine want to fold their animals for the night, that's when they separate the sheep from the goats. And that's the image that Jesus is using here. Here's a shepherd who's separating the sheep from the goats. Now, the important thing here is the basis on which he separates the sheep from the goats. He first turns to the sheep and he says in verse 34, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So he says to them, take possession of all that God has made available for you. Now, why are you to inherit? Well, because I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger, and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison, and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them you did it to me. So the king will say to them on that day, the basis on which I admit you into my kingdom, or send you away from me, is the degree to which you were faithful in responding to the needs of my brothers. Now, there's a question as what the to to whom the Lord refers when He talks about the brothers of the Lord. Uh, for myself, I think the best explanation is the Lord's own words in Matthew 12:50, where He says that whoever does the will of My Father in heaven, He is my mother and brother and my sister. So the brothers, I believe, primarily refer to other Christians, other members of the household. And the Lord will evaluate us when we stand before him, all of us who are identified with the church in some way. He'll evaluate us on the basis of how faithfully we have responded to the needs of the brothers of the king. And some will go into the kingdom for eternity and others will depart from the Lord again for all eternity. That sounds a little bit like a salvation by works, doesn't it? That if you do enough good deeds, you're gonna be admitted in, and if you don't do enough, you're not gonna make it. Well it's not what the Lord is saying here, because clearly, as Bill Seneca mentioned earlier, here the acts of love is the clearest manifestation or evidence of a new birth. If we have genuinely been born again, then that life will be expressed itself will express itself very practically in meeting the needs of people around us. And this is the same thing that John said in 1 John when he said that if anyone has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? John says that's how you can tell the difference between one who genuinely has the love of God in his heart and who doesn't. How do they respond when they see a brother in need? That's the evidence. That's the mark. See, that's the test of the authentic Christian life. So Jesus will be able to evaluate us and determine which direction we go simply on the basis of our works because the works are a faithful expression of what is true in the heart. Now, one other thing that I think is extremely important in this little story that the Lord tells is that these works of love were rendered even, he says, to the least of my brothers. That means ministry that's done to people that the world doesn't consider very important is important to the king. I think we sometimes feel that uh, you know that, that the ministries that really count and that are exciting are the ministries that, that take place in Washington, DC to congressmen and to senators and uh, to leaders in the business world. And we see to ourselves, you know, that's the kind of ministry that I would like to have. That's where fulfillment is. And boy, those people are are really going to be be uh, honored by God for their faithfulness in ministering to these great leaders of, of nations and countries. And sure, it's exciting to read about this. But see, the Lord says, to the degree that you've done it, even to the least of my brothers, you've done it to me. And that means the simple quiet acts of love that we do to people that nobody else considers very important but we love them and reach out to meet their needs that counts just as much in the lord's eyes as sharing the gospel with a congressman or a senator and that's the really the acid test See, because all of us find it easy to minister to people who are important and and make us feel good and we like to be identified with them and we like to tell people that we share the lord with with so and so who's who is a prominent member of the community But it's another thing to minister to people when we'll never get credit for it, to people that are unimpressive to anyone else. And see, those are the kind of people the Lord is talking about here, those that are naked and those that are hungry and those that are thirsty. This is not a glamorous kind of ministry the Lord is talking about, but simply and quietly and faithfully meeting the needs of people around us. But that, he says, is the acid test of genuine Christianity. Now, in the last sequence in the chapter... He talks to those who have gone away to the left. And he says to them, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. One thing that's always impressed me in reading the accounts in the Gospels of the Lord's return in judgment is how surprised everybody is when they hear the verdict. See, those that are admitted are surprised at what the Lord says to them, and those that are rejected are surprised. And this suggests to me that the, that the kind of activity the Lord is interested in is a kind of activity that just springs unconsciously out of a simple desire to help. See, without any thought given to how many people will find out about this, how obvious this will be to other people, how much credit we'll get for doing this good deed. See acts that are offered without any consideration for what kind of benefit it will bring to me in the eyes of other people. That's the genuine kind of Christianity that the Lord is concerned with. And I think it's a it's important to realize as we trace through all of Matthew twenty five that there are two consequences open to us. Those of us who are identified with the church in some sense. And that is that each of the ones of us in here need to take stock of our own spiritual life and ask ourselves are we wise virgins or are we foolish virgins? Are we good and faithful slaves or are we in truth wicked and lazy slaves? Are we sheep or are we goats? Because here are three groups of people from the outside. You couldn't tell any difference between them. They all look like the real article. But when the true light of the day revealed things exactly as they were, then it was discovered that some never had a relationship with the Lord at all. And you may be here this morning. You may be someone who has uh, identified yourself with a church. You may be a member of a church. You may have sung the songs of the church and read the book of the church and listened to the listened to the sermons of the church and yet never become a disciple of the Master. And the point is, we just have got to stop fooling ourselves. See, one day, the light of reality, and harsh and unyielding, is going to shine on our lives. And then we'll see the kind of person we've been becoming all along, and we'll have to live with that person for all eternity. See, and the Lord is serious about this. We need to take stock. This is important, the most important thing in all of life. We need to stop playing games and take seriously what the Lord says. We need to be disciples, not just those that are identified externally in some way with the church, but those who genuinely have yielded our hearts to the Lord. Now, the second aspect is to those of us who are genuinely believers, and that is to ask ourselves the question Am I faithfully meeting the needs of people around me? In my business, in my office? in my dorm, in my neighborhood? Am I responding to the needs of those people in quiet ways? Now, Bill has mentioned the need of this Vietnamese family. Well, see, here's a family that will come into this country, in many respects, naked, thirsty, and hungry. See? And they're not particularly important people. No one's going to write them up in Newsweek or Time, and we're not liable even to get credit for it in a cold challenge if we do something for them. But see, here's an opportunity to be faithful in meeting the needs of people around us that are not particularly important. Now what's exciting to me is that the opportunity exists for everyone in this room to hear exactly the same words from the master. And that is, well done, good and faithful servant. See we think of <clears throat> individuals like Luis Palau and Billy Graham whose ministries take them before thousands of people. And you see yourself as as a housewife who is throttled by young children and no freedom to even go to women's Bible studies, except rarely. And you think, my gosh, you know, what opportunity do I have to truly be honored and receive the approval of the Lord? And the point that that Jesus makes here is exactly the same opportunity. See, you will be evaluated on the same basis that Luis Palau is. If you are faithful in the ministry to which God has called you, then you will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, regardless of how much press or notice your ministry gets. I think that's a great lesson for us, to uh, simply be be available to be faithful in quiet acts of ministry and to test ourselves, ask ourselves, are we those whose hearts are open to the Lord and available to reach out to others? I read a quote from C.S. Lewis, I think, that uh, sums up the the approach of the wicked slave very well. I'd like to read it to you and have all of us evaluate our hearts in light of this statement. This is a perfect description of the life of the slave that the Lord called a wicked and lazy slave. This is what Lewis says. He says, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket of the coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is in hell. And see, that's the lot of the foolish virgins, see? Here's a group of people identified themselves with the church but were living life entirely from themselves, protecting themselves, refusing to take risks to meet the needs of other people, protecting reputation and and possessions and time and money and energies for themselves and not flinging it away for the Lord's sake to other people. And yet the great possibility is if we will take that risk, see, if we'll take chances with what the Lord's invested to us, in order to to serve him and meet the needs of other people. There's a great prospect of increasing joy and fulfillment and satisfaction. You notice it's a very stark contrast that he draws. The virgins are shut out of the wedding feast while the foolish virgins are in celebrating and rejoicing. And the, the wise servants enter into the joy of their master and are put in charge of many things. And the foolish slave is cast out into the outer darkness, a place of no life and no light. And the same with the sheep and the goats. The sheep enjoy the kingdom, the resources, the power of the king for all eternity. And the goats are left on the outside to to suffer eternally with the kind of person they've allowed themselves to become. But the great possibility is if we're willing to risk, to throw our lives away, to faithfully meet needs of people, it's a great vista of joy and contentment that awaits us. When I graduated from college few years ago I went up to Western Seminary in uh, Portland to do a summer's worth of Greek and I got a job uh, as a janitor in a uh, scrapyard and this is I thought I'm going right to the top here I'm sweeping floors in a junkyard this is you know know, tremendous potential here that I'm exhibiting. But the significant thing to me about that whole encounter was the, uh, the man I met the first night on the job. He was a guy that was showing me what I was supposed to do, and he was a man who was in his 40s. And four years before I met him, he had been a very prosperous insurance executive in the Portland area, lived in a beautiful home on top of a hill, had memberships in several country clubs in the Portland area, took exotic vacations and long vacations, and and took his family on extended camping and hiking and backpacking vacations through some of the the great natural beauty in America, and just lived kind of the model American dream lifestyle. Well, about six years before I met this man, he'd become a Christian. The Lord had taken control of his life and established himself as his Lord, and as he began to work in this man's heart, he convinced him that what the Lord wanted him to do was to prepare himself for full-time Christian service, that he'd given him those kind of gifts and those kind of desires. And so after battling with this for a while, he finally decided that he would obey the Lord's direction in his life. And so he enrolled in seminary, in a seminary there in Portland. And to do so, he, he had to get out of the insurance business. He gave up the $60,000 a year job, the memberships in the country clubs, the, the extended camping vacations through the national parks in this country in order to prepare himself to meet the needs of the brothers of the king. About three months before I met this man, he was about ready to graduate from seminary, and he and his wife had gone to a meeting in which a ministry opportunity was being presented, and there were six or seven other couples interested in the same opportunity. And there was a, there was a lodge halfway up Mount Hood that a man had donated for the purpose of being a rehabilitation home for juvenile delinquents place where they could go and receive discipline and love and an and outdoors life to, to bring some discipline and responsibility into their lives. And he had donated all that was necessary to carry out this ministry, and now they were looking for a couple to staff this place. So they saw the slide tape presentation of the, the beautiful lodge and the fireplace and the lounge area and the home was available for the couple that was selected, and the uh, beauties of Mount Hood, the wildlife, the rivers, the streams, the trees... And as I drove home, this man noticed that his wife was in tears. She was crying, and he asked her why. And she said, well, because that ministry situation is just so perfect for us and so much what we want, I'm just sure the Lord's going to give it to somebody else. And But the exciting thing was that I met this guy on a Tuesday night, and on Wednesday morning he was moving his family up to that lodge halfway up Mount Hood. And the excitement and the contentment and the joy that I saw in that man's life. You know, no no amount of, of business prosperity could ever buy that. That's just shallow in comparison to what I saw in that man. So that's a possibility open for us, just to risk our lives for the Lord to meet, to quietly and faithfully meet the needs of other people. So we're to be alert. That's the point of the parable of the virgins, to be ready, do whatever it takes to be ready. And the point of the talents is what it takes to be ready is simple faithfulness in the ministry that God's given us. And see, that's how we prepare ourselves for the second coming, just today on a quiet basis, being faithful to meet needs of people around us. Well, why don't we stand together and we'll uh, pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Lord, we thank you that the scriptures are such a realistic book and that you just give us the, uh, the facts about life. You tell us what the fundamental issues in life are and how we can be prepared for them, how we can learn to handle them. We thank you that you've been so clear to us in this passage and indicating to us what the important things in life truly are. We pray, Father, that uh, as we consider in our hearts the message of the Scripture that you've given us this morning, that we would be renew our commitment to quietly depend upon you and count upon your resource and your power and your grace, your kindness, and your tenderness to, to reach out to people around us, the, the quiet, seemingly insignificant people who are your brothers, brothers of the king, and who, uh, who are clothed and hungry, they're unclothed and hungry and thirsty, and in need of a word of encouragement and love. We pray that you motivate us to, to be those kind of people. We look forward so much, Lord, to hearing one day that, that we have done well and that we're good and faithful servants, and uh, that we've been faithful in few, and that you're going to put us in charge of much. And we pray that we'll just exercise that faithfulness this very day. Amen.